This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. So I have a few um, preliminaries I want to do real quick here. Uh, Jake mentioned the Pastors College. There's a brochure out on the shelf table thing out under the screen. And then this is another thing we're doing called Athanasius College. And this brochure is about a a gap year program, a one-year kind of intensive thing to help um, prepare students who are going off on to college or don't know what to do next, whatever. So pick one of those up, or if you want to ask me, you can ask me about those things. Uh, They asked us to, um, the speakers, to put together a list of books, and uh, I didn't get anything on paper, so I just want to hold up a couple of things. This is a book uh, called On Guard, Preventing and Responding to Child Abuse at Church. Kind of appropriate, right? We ordered a bunch of these um, earlier this week, and they were supposed to come today, and I don't think they did, as far as we can tell. So they, they might be here tomorrow. When they get here, we'll, if they get here, we'll put them out here on the, on the table. Um, some really helpful stuff in here. There's a chapter in here dealing with what we're going to talk about tonight. And there's just some good stuff in there, so take, check that out. And then here's a weird one for you. Um, this is a book called On Combat by a guy named Lieutenant uh, Colonel Dave Grossman. All right, this guy was an um, army ranger, paratrooper, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes around teaching... Um, law enforcement officers and military personnel about the psychological um, and physiological impact of actually being in combat, not being on the receiving end, but doing it, you know, fighting. And um, this is a book that I'm probably, I've contemplated a few times, and I think I'm going to try to make it happen in future years of actually making this required reading in the pastor's college, all right? Because it's really what it's about. Um, Pastor Bailey was reading about um, shepherds, reading books about shepherds, right? And it's not about pastors, but it is about pastors. This is about combat. Um, there's an analogy that uh, some of you might have heard before that comes from this book where he talks about... Um, Everyone is either a sheep or a wolf or a sheepdog is what he calls it, the one who protects the sheep from the wolves. Perfect analogy for pastoral ministry. And when you're going into the kinds of situations that we're talking about and you feel the, all the things that, are, that happen when people literally go into combat, the heart starts beating, the, you, you start losing your mind, you know, you have the Marco Rubio moment. I don't know if you all saw that. You didn't see that. (laughs) So if you didn't see it, it's so funny and it's so awful, it's so embarrassing. Or Trump is just giving him a heart. No, it's not Trump, it's uh, the other guy, Christie. It's just, you know, flustering him. And he has this little canned, you know, response and it's just like the pull-up doll you know the pull the string on the back and it just says the same thing over and over again 
It's, it's hilarious, but it's like, ugh. And that's what we do. We, we just kind of, we don't know what to say when, when these difficult things come. Or we end up saying something stupid, you know. And this helps you understand all of that, what's going on and how to get your feet and move forward. Excellent stuff. So you men who are pastors, you should read that book. One other preliminary. Um, <clears throat> Pastor Bailey mentioned Stonegate Resources, and I thought it would be good to let you all know that my wife and I had the uh, privilege of going there um, about a year ago. It was like in April, so getting close to a year ago. Um, for just long-term issues in our marriage relationally, and I will, I will tell you, everything that Tim said is true. Excellent, excellent help for us. So th- thank you. And um, you can come and talk to us, me or Sieber about that if, you, if you'd like. All right, last thing to say before I read some, some scripture. I was sitting there uh, when Tim was giving his preliminaries uh, before Mary Lee spoke a little while ago. And uh, everything that Tim was saying, I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> so I'm going to say things. I had already planned to say them. It's just how God works, so you'll hear it again. Galatians 6, 1 to 10. I want to read to you because um, pastors, when they get up to speak, feel like they want to have a Bible passage that they read and I'm really not going to preach from this, but I want to read it. Galatians 6. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now think about this in terms of all that we're talking about this week, right? Caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Sitting here listening to the things, especially earlier that the uh, state police were talking about, right? I kept just praying, you know, help us not to, to get curious about those things. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap." For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Let's pray together before we begin. Father, we ask that you would come and be with us, and uh, especially as we deal with very difficult things and continue to deal with difficult things, 
I pray for those here who have gone through these things, um, that you would comfort them, that you would draw near to them as um, old wounds and pains and sorrows keep getting brought up over and over again in this, in this time together. I pray that they would cling to you. And help us now, Lord, give us wisdom and, and discernment and courage and faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So what does the Bible say about sexual abuse or sexual molestation? Well, nothing directly, right? You're not going to find it in your concordance. But plenty by implication. Plenty by implication. And here's where we have to start. Right, here's the, here's the plumb line that sets everything straight. First of all, this. God approves and adds his blessing to one and only one form of sexual activity. Sex within marriage between one man and one woman, period. That's the plumb line. Hebrews 13.4 Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That's the plumb line. And all other forms of sexual behavior receive God's judgment. And that judgment is both spiritual and temporal. God's spiritual judgment on unrepentant sexual sin is very grave. Ephesians 5, 3 to 6. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Very serious spiritual judgment on those who practice these sins. And God's temporal judgment on sexual sin is also very grave. There are five categories of sexual sin mentioned in the Old Testament that receive temporal judicial punishment. Adultery, which carries the death penalty. Fornication, which usually carried the death penalty. Same-sex activity, regardless of age, which carried the death penalty. Incest, which carried the death penalty and bestiality, which carried the death penalty for both the person and the animal. Obviously, if you think about what sexual molestation is or sexual abuse of a child, it potentially falls under at least one of four of those five categories, right? Adultery, if the offender is married, fornication, incest, and maybe same-sex activity, depending on the, the circumstances. In God's righteous, just law, all four categories were punishable by what? 
by death. And here's the, the, the clear biblical implication. Death was the penalty for sexual molestation. That's how serious this is. And so we must bring our minds and our hearts back under God's righteous judgment. Do we believe that those sins and crimes deserve the penalty of death? Or do we believe instead that those laws are old and outdated and cruel and ultimately, if we're being honest, unjust? Unjust. Those are Old Testament laws, which means the New Testament would have us do away with them. They don't match our enlightened view of justice and jurisprudence and crime and punishment. That's what we think. And yet, those laws came from God, and God is just. And as a matter of fact, the New Testament itself says in Hebrews 2.2, this is the New Testament, that in Hebrews 2.2 says that the, in the Old Testament law, every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Right? So when the New Testament looks back on the Old Testament and all these laws like the ones I just told you about, the New Testament says, that's just. That is just. That's right. So are those laws just or not? Well, of course they're just. And so we have to realign our thinking. We have to realign our thinking to fit the justice of God. We have no right to realign God's law to fit our justice. That's backwards. We don't know justice. We don't know righteousness. But righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. What would our society look like if these just laws from God were still on our books? Death for adultery. Death for fornication. Death for incest, death for bestiality, death for homosexuality. That's the just law of God. What would our society look like if those laws were still on the books? Well, some would say it would be a bloodbath. So we can't do that, right? But what does that do with God's law? It ignores how God's law works to restrain evil, right? So here's John Calvin. You've got to get your dose of John Calvin, and here it is. From the Institutes, okay? Talking about the law of God. Here's what he says. The second function of the law is this. At least by fear of punishment, to restrain certain men who are untouched by any care for what is just and right, unless compelled by hearing the dire threats of the law. But they are restrained, not because their inner mind is stirred or affected, but because being bridled, so to speak, they keep their hands from outward activity and hold inside the depravity that otherwise they would wantonly have indulged. 
Consequently, they are neither better nor more righteous before God. Hindered by fright or shame, they dare neither execute what they have conceived in their minds, nor openly breathe forth the rage of their lust. Still, they do not have hearts disposed to fear and obedience toward God. Indeed, the more they restrain themselves, the more strongly they are inflamed. They burn and boil within and are ready to do anything or burst forth anywhere, but for the fact that this dread of the law hinders them. Not only that, but so wickedly do they also hate the law itself and curse God the lawgiver that if they could, they would most certainly abolish him For they cannot bear him, either when he commands them to do right or when he takes vengeance on the despisers of his majesty. All who are still unregenerate feel, some more obscurely, some more openly, that they are not drawn to obey the law voluntarily, but impelled by a violent fear, do so against their will and despite their opposition to it. But this constrained and forced righteousness Listen, this constrained and forced righteousness is necessary for the public community of men, for civil society, for whose tranquility the Lord herein, in the law, provided when he took care that everything be not tumultuously confounded. This would happen if everything were permitted to all men. And so here we are right? Here we are in a society where everything is, in fact, permitted to all men. Almost. Almost. We have rejected the justice of God's law regarding sexual sins and crimes, and so we have sexual chaos. Everything is, in fact, tumultuously confounded, as Calvin says. But if these laws were brought back into force into a, in a, a society that feared the Lord, there would not be a bloodbath because the law would do its work of restraint. And the civil magistrate would do their God-appointed work. Remember what Brian Bailey read to us earlier from Romans 13. Here's verse 4. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for the civil magistrate, the ruler, does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God and avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Again, Calvin says, the law is like a halter to check the ragtag and otherwise limitlessly ranging lusts of the flesh. It's a great gift of God to men everywhere. Now, why is this so important to understand? It's important to understand because when we deal with a sexual predator, we must start by thinking about his sin and his crime the way God thinks about it. Are we more just than God? Are we wiser than God? Are we more gracious than God? I'm afraid that we absolutely think we are. Absolutely, we think we are. And so we have to realign ourselves. We have to start where God starts. Sexual molestation is a sin that deserves God's wrath 
in eternal torment in hell. And sexual molestation is a crime that deserves the administration of God's wrath here in time and space by the hand of the civil magistrate. That's the truth. Everything must flow out of that. But confusion on that point, right, produces all kinds of damage and chaos and destruction and pain in the lives of both the victims and the perpetrators of sexual molestation. Let's think about, just for a second, about the victims. Uh, Max Carell is going to talk about the victims tomorrow. But just think about this just for a second. Victims need justice. Victims need justice. Not just the perpetrator needs justice. Victims need justice. They need us to seek justice for them. We do do them no favors by in any way shielding the molesters, their molesters, from justice. We're doing the victims no favors by shielding the perpetrators, the molesters, from justice. But somehow we Christians have become very good at shielding molesters from justice. And we've done it in the name of God's grace. That is a travesty. That is a perversity. It's an abomination to miscarry justice in the name of grace. But you'll say, well, you know, isn't that what the gospel's all about? Doesn't mercy triumph over judgment? Isn't it a man's glory to overlook a transgression? I'm just quoting the Bible to you. Isn't that what the Bible says? Several years ago, I was here not very long working with um, Pastor Bailey and Pastor Carell. And um, there was uh, Pastor Bailey and Pastor Carell and I sat in a room with a pastor from another church in another town. And a man in that other church had molested his daughter. And the church called Tim in. I was along for the ride, you know. And as we talked about the crime, the pastor of the other church kept saying, but, but what about grace? Remember this? <laughs> I, I remember it. I can see the room. What about grace? What about grace? Where is grace? Shouldn't we exercise grace? That's what the pastor was saying, right? When we were talking about how to deal with the man who'd molested his daughter. Do you know why, you know that sexual molesters target churches. Um, Dr. Schomburg talked about that a little bit this morning. They target churches. There are many reasons for that. He talked about some of them. There's lots of children, right? Some more than others and some, you know. Christians are naive. Christians are naive. Large buildings, areas that are unsupervised, you know, this is the perfect place. 
But you know, another reason that predators target churches is because we feed on cheap grace. We feed on it and dish it out. I want to read you a quote from an article called Suffer the Children, Developing Effective Church Policies on Child Maltreatment uh, by a a man named Victor Veith. This book uh, refers to this article, so that's how I found out about it. It's put out by that organization that someone mentioned, the Grace Organization, yeah. It's a good quote. Let me read this to you. He says, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran minister executed by the Nazis because of his opposition to the government. Perhaps Bonhoeffer's greatest contribution to theology was his recognition of the dangers of cheap grace, which Bonhoeffer defined as, quote, grace sold on the market like cheap cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. That's what Bonhoeffer says. He goes on, Many sex offenders have found the value of cheap grace in faith communities. Simply put, these sex offenders have come to realize that if they cry readily and mouth the words of repentance, they won't have to take any action to remedy the damage they have inflicted. According to sex offender treatment provider Anna Salter, quote, If children can be silenced and the average person is easy to fool, many offenders report that religious people are even easier to fool than most people. That is a shame. He goes on. Numerous clergy have been confronted with an offender who confesses to sexually abusing a child, emotionally expresses remorse, and pledges abuse will never happen again. The offender begs for God's forgiveness, and some members of the clergy are quick to absolve the sinner and the sin. When this happens, many offenders return home, realize how easy it is to be forgiven, and will molest their child again. Does our, does our knee-jerk, quick response of so-called grace actually help anyone? in that situation? Does it help the victim? No. Does it help the community, the church, the family? No. Does it help the perpetrator? No. It does not help anyone. It only destroys. So what, why do we do this? What underlies our tendency to jump to forgiveness, to jump to grace, to jump to minimizing the horror of what a man or a woman has done. Here are a few things that trip us up. Number one, pity. Pity. We're quick to jump over justice and straight to grace because we take pity on the offender, the the predator, the molester. Now, why would we take pity on the offender? criminal. Well, because we come to learn or innately just understand that the victimizer was once what? The victim. Yeah. It's very, very often the case. 
Those who are victims of molestation and abuse become victimizers, and our heart goes out to them. We see them as broken, as wounded. We take pity on them, and we turn that pity into sympathy, and that sympathy becomes leniency. We make excuses for them. We begin to hear the horror of their own abuse. We begin to think that, you know, they're not really responsible for their own sins because of the ways they've been sinned against. There's an explanation for this. And in a weird, twisted attempt at pity, we ignore the pain and the devastation of the current victim and give comfort to the victimizer. Now, listen, to be sure, we need to understand that victims become victimizers. That is obviously one of the horrors of this sin. Victims become victimizers, right? When a child is corrupted, he's corrupted. We need to understand that. We need to understand how that works and what's going on. We need to understand the victimizer, but we may not excuse him. If we excuse him, we cut him off from the very grace we are supposedly trying to triumph. Cut him off. Secondly, another reason why we we jump over justice and straight to grace is that we have a bad conscience. We ourselves have a bad conscience. Anyone who works with sinners, right? Any counselor, any older woman in a church, any elder or pastor, anyone who works with sinners is constantly reminded of his own sin. Time after time after time, I sit in a room with a man caught in some transgression, right, as, as, as Galatians 6 says. A man caught in whatever sin, lust, pornography, laziness, irresponsibility, anger, failure with his children, hatred towards his wife, whatever, you name it. And I think, wow, that sounds like me. I know that sin from the inside. I'm not just on the outside observing. I know exactly what you're talking about. I see myself in this man. And then what happens next? I'm immediately tempted to do what? You tell me. What am I immediately tempted to do? Hmm? Make excuses? Go easy? You know, pull the punches a little bit? Well, we just won't talk about that. You know? Not pursue a line of questions that I know will uncover more sin? Why? Well, because I have a bad conscience. I don't want to do the hard work of facing and dealing with my own sins. And so I'm hamstrung, right? 
I'm made impotent by my inability to deal with my own sins, my unwillingness to deal with my own sins. And so I'm impotent in my ability to help him with his. Have you ever been there? This is why scripture tells pastors, be careful, right? Pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to yourself. Pursue purity. Pursue righteousness. Because if you don't, you won't be able to help anyone. Third, another reason we fail in our care of sexual offenders, we misunderstand the difference between a sin and a crime. We know that God in the gospel forgives our sins, right? We know that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he offers us forgiveness and mercy. That is the heart of our calling as pastors, We are ministers of the gospel. And so when we discover a case of sexual molestation or abuse, we rightfully see it as a sin. Of course it's a sin. And when we think about sin, we think about mercy and forgiveness and grace. Can't God forgive even this sin? Can't Jesus' blood and righteousness cover even this? Wasn't the Apostle Paul the chief of sinners? If God forgave and used him, can't God forgive this man or woman? What's the answer to that? Absolutely yes and amen, he can. Of course God can forgive the sexual sinner. Of course the blood of Jesus Christ can release us even from this sin. And as we work with a man or a woman caught in this sin, we want to see them repent. We want to see them find forgiveness and newness of life. Of course. So what's the problem? The problem is that we confuse sins and crimes. The Lord God Almighty can forgive our sins by the blood of Christ shed on the cross. But when God forgives a sin, he does not therefore remove the consequences of a crime. And remember, in God's law, these sexual sins are not just sins, they are also crimes. And God in his law requires crimes to be punished by the civil magistrate. And that's not just an Old Testament thing. Get that thought as far out of your mind as you can. The calling and responsibility of a civil magistrate in all places and at all times is, as we heard this morning, to bear the sword. He is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil, who brings God's wrath on the one who practices evil. Evil by whose standard? By God's standard. Or else that's just gobbledygook. And that's in the New Testament. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't been done away with in the gospel. The civil magistrate has the responsibility and the calling to bring wrath, God's wrath, on the one who breaks God's law. Now, does that mean that a man who's committed a capital crime cannot go to heaven when he's executed? No, of course not. If he repents and calls out to God and casts himself at Jesus' feet for mercy, he will be with Jesus as soon as the sword falls. Think of that. 
It's what Pastor Bailey was talking about, the gallows sermons. Right? The goal of, the, of that pastor is for that man to repent. And if you're a pastor, you will plead with anyone who bears the sentence of death to repent and to be ready to meet his maker. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm dealing with this as if we were still following God's laws in this. But will you plead with the judge? Will you plead with the civil magistrate to be lenient on his crimes? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, I've seen that, and I'm sure you have too. You know, he's really a good man. He comes to church every week. And by the way, I'll step out of that little thing for a second. All of the cases of sexual molestation that we have dealt with have been men in the church, men or women, who, who present, and, and they've said this before, but I want you to hear it again, men or women who present as stalwarts in the church, right? But he's, he's in the church, right? <clears throat> this is what we say. He comes to church every week. He takes the Lord's Supper. He didn't really mean to hurt anyone. He comes from a good family. He said that he repents, and I believe him. Would you consider being lenient, judge? Would you give him the lightest sentence? After all, the gospel says that he's forgiven. Would you do that with a murderer? Then why would you do it with a molester? Now, I'm going to belabor this point for just a second. All right, I just want to... Just bear with me for just a minute. Suppose a man commits a crime. He robs a convenience store, and in the process, he shoots the clerk. He murders him. And as he's fleeing the scene, he he carjacks a car with a Christian in it, with you in it. You know, scoot over. I'm driving. You know, he takes the car. And you're a good Christian, right? So you share the gospel with the murderer as he's driving down the road, being chased by the police. And as you're sharing the gospel with the murderer, as he's chasing, you know, running away from the police, God gives that murderer the gift of faith. He opens his eyes. He gives him a new heart. That man trusts in Jesus Christ alone, right on the spot. And then the newly converted murderer pulls over and gives himself up to the police. All right? Well, what then? What then? What do you say if you're the man who led him to Christ in the car that he stole from you as he's driving away from the murder scene? Wait, 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 officer, you don't understand. You don't, you don't need to arrest this man. He's a Christian now. God has forgiven him of all of his sins, including murder. He doesn't need justice. He has grace. He's forgiven. Don't deny the gospel. Let him go free. No. You wouldn't do that. 
then why would you do that in the case of a man or a woman who has broken God's law and the law of the land by preying on an innocent, terrified little girl or boy? Why would you do that? God might forgive him for his sins, but the police, the judge, the civil magistrate must punish him for his crimes. And it is not for you or me to tear down God's justice in the name of God's grace, to break God's law in the name of God's gospel. Those who commit crimes must stand before the law. And if we shield them from judgment, from justice, we don't love them, we hate them. Because we cut them off from the one thing they need. They need to repent. How will they repent if we coddle them? Let me close. I'm going to close with a little uh, list of do's and don'ts. And you've heard most of these already from somebody. (laughs) If not from me, then you've heard them because we all keep saying the same kind of thing. Here's a list of do's and don'ts with those who commit the sins and crimes of sexual molestation. Number one, do not ignore the signs of molestation. You are not loving anybody if you choose to think the best. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, love, how does it go? Believes all things. (laughs) Let me just tell you, that's not what that means. You know? You're not loving anybody if you, if, you, if you choose to think the best and ignore what you see. Number two, do not offer cheap grace to the molester. We talked about that. Number three, do not shield the molester from the temporal consequences of his crimes. We've talked about that. Many of us have said, take him to the police. Do not plead for lenience with the judge. Never pit justice against grace or the law against the gospel. Number four, do not excuse. Don't let your pity for him or her short-circuit your, your mind. Number five, do not put the predator before the victim. Never put the predator before the victim. Number six, do not be tempted. As I said earlier, the warning from Galatians 6, remember? Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. When you, when you get involved with these kinds of situations, things come into your mind that you never thought could come into your mind. You understand? Because what you have to deal with them, you have to hear them. And sin is deceitful, and our hearts have sin in them. Don't be tempted. Number seven, do protect the innocent. Do tell the parents of the church or the families and friends who could be potential victims. Don't protect 
the victimizer at the expense of all these other people who could, could be potential victims. They need to know. And number nine, do insist on fruits in keeping with repentance. There's a passage, I don't want to read the whole thing, 2 Corinthians 7, talks about sorrow, godly sorrow that leads to life, right? Leads to salvation. Let me just read part of it. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. That's what real repentance looks like. It doesn't try to get the minimum, you know, requirements dancing around the edges of this. It says, tell me what to do. You tell me what to do and I'll do it. Full confession. You know, a man who's molested a child and forces it to go to court and forces that child to be dragged through the court system, having to testify, that's not repentance. Move out of the house. Go to a different church. Make restitution. Do whatever you can to fix this. It can't be fixed, you understand but do whatever you can. This is why in the Old Testament and God's law, there's only one fix for this. Right? It's justice. But here we are in America, so do whatever you can. Now, before we pray, I just want to say a couple of things here. First, God will give you the wisdom and the faith and the courage to deal with these terrible things. He will. Seek God in the midst of the awful process of working through these cases. Do not become cynical about God's grace. Do not go off into la-la land about God's justice. Call in help. You've heard this over and over again. Call the police. Call other pastors. Don't become cynical and jaded about sex. When you're dealing with perversions of the most terrible sort, remember the beauty and the glory and the joy of the way things ought to be. You understand me? And then go and make it so in your own home. Remember both sides of Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is undefiled. You walk out of counseling these kinds of situations and you feel like, you know, you just, you just can't get it off of you. You just feel so gross. Not because you don't, maybe, maybe because you see yourself in these men and women. You know what I'm saying? But you feel so. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is undefiled. 
for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Keep those things together. And lastly, it's one last thing I want to say. It really is wonderfully appropriate in God's, um, in God's providence that we're going to have a concert tonight from the Psalms. Feed on the Psalms. The Psalms, you know, are all about enemies and justice and vindication and righteousness and grace and help, pain. It's all in there. The Psalms are about God meeting us in the middle of all of that mess. And so, if you're a victim of these terrible crimes and sins, let the Psalms work into your soul. If you're a pastor or a shepherd, an elder, let the Psalms strengthen you for your work. There's a God in heaven, and he's he's going to make it right. And if you're a predator... If you're a perpetrator of these crimes and sins, let the Psalms call you to repentance through the terror of God's judgment and the grace of his gospel. Hear it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word for the way that it comes and, and just and gives us everything we need for life and godliness, as you've said. I pray that you would help us, help all of these men and women, give us courage and faith and purity in this work. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring real healing and redemption and peace that you would bring justice, that you would bring restitution. Lord, you are the great king. And righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Please help us, Lord, as we do this work. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.